I want to invite you to stand. We'll begin as we do every, every Sunday morning. We love to sing with our kids. And we believe scripture is important, so we'll be singing this. This is the Lord's Prayer from the Message Translation. Over the next several weeks together, I invite you to lift your voices in song and maybe even commit this version of the Lord's Prayer to memory. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right, do what is best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us safe from the devil and ourselves. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. You are in charge. You can do anything. You are beautiful. You are in charge. You can do anything. You are beautiful. You can grab a seat. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Glad to be here to worship together. Excited for an opportunity to come together this morning uh, to set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. This is what we do every Sunday as a faith family. Uh, we come into this space um, out of our normal rhythms um, of life so that we can, again, set our minds, attentions, hearts, affections upon Jesus in order that we might leave this space and be the church might leave this space and be ones who follow Jesus um, in our everyday roles and relationships and work and neighborhood and home and community um, to the glory of the Lord. That's what we desire to do as a faith family. That's what we long to do as a faith family. And so for those that are new uh, to Christ City, newer, um, thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. We're excited to worship with you. Um, just so you know, like the way we talk about things, we don't talk about this as church. We just talk about this as the church coming together. Um, again, to ground us in the thing that makes us church, which is our relationship to Jesus and to one another through Jesus. And so we'd love to invite you into that relationship with us um, in a deeper way, in a more intimate way, um, what we call gospel community, which is just um, people trying to follow Jesus throughout the rest of their life. So there's these little black cards on the box or the table back here at the back. You can fill those out, drop them off. Um, but really gospel community for us, again, is people sharing life to follow Jesus together. Um, and so I want to invite you to a meal with us, uh, whether that be after the, the gathering today. I know a couple of GCs are going to go grab something to eat, find somebody to go grab a meal with. Our gospel community is getting together this evening. If you want to come and be a part of that, we're having a meal together at the Nance's house. So we'd love for you to come and join us. Um, or um, starting in August, we're going to actually just stay in this room and eat together. So all of August, we're going to be eating together as a faith family. Um, every Sunday after the gathering, we'll have probably this whole section over here turned into tables and things like that. And so, because um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the meals that Jesus had with people in Scripture. 
And so as we're immersing ourselves in the stories of Jesus eating with people, speaking with people, revealing the kingdom of God to people over dinner, uh, we're going to get to have dinner together. And so, um, so what I need from, from you all is a couple things. Um, I, because, of, um, because of just the, the simplicity of our family, I think I know most people's allergies, food allergies, because um, we're going to be bringing in food. But it, for some reason, um, um, if you don't think I know that or would like to make that explicit, Please email or text me this week and let me know what food allergies you had. We'll try to, to, um, to make sure that we accommodate for that. And if we aren't able to, I'll let you know uh, with enough um, ahead of time so you can bring something that does fit your, your, um, your dietary needs. Um, but also, um, we're going to, because just for safety purposes, we're going to do box lunches things just to kind of limit some of our sharing. Um, we'll share a meal, but try not to share each other's uh, utensils and things. Um, 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 we're going to be doing box type lunches and things. So we're going to do this for five weeks. So if you have ideas of places that will deliver on a Sunday that are box lunches that taste good, that might be unique, other than like a Jason's Deli or whatever, um, please let me know because we would love to mix it up a little bit. And so otherwise, if you leave me in charge of it, if you leave me in charge of it, it's going to be like turkey and ham sandwiches like every Sunday for the next five Sundays. So, so if you want something tasty and good and creative, um, you foodies that I know exist in our faith family, please come forward with your gift of foodiness um, and let that be used for the body. So please let me know as soon as you can, ideas, thoughts, and we'll help chase those down. And then last but not least on this front, um, uh, in order to kind of make this a smooth thing, um, if we need uh, some people, either a person or multiple people, who'd be willing on Sunday just to kind of hang out at the back of the sanctuary and receive the food when it gets here, because we're going to have it delivered like 11.45-ish or so. So somebody just kind of coordinate that it gets in from the outside, from the delivery person into our sanctuary. Um, and so if you fill up for that, if you know you're going to be here one or multiple of the Sundays and don't mind kind of being somebody that we could give a delivery driver your number so they could text when they get here, um, that would be really helpful. So again, if you have food allergies, let me know. If you have ideas for food, let me know. If you have, um, uh, or if you're willing to kind of help coordinate the food end of it, and really all it is is making sure it gets into this space, um, then we'd love, we'd love your help. Let me know. Um, I would really appreciate it. And so um, that's kind of it for announcements for things. As you know, we have stuff, the normal things coming up, adoration tomorrow night, um, on Monday night, setting our minds, attentions, hearts, affections by Jesus through worship in Victory Meadows. Um, and we have a corporate fast coming up in a couple weeks. And so be prepared, um, even in the midst of feasting together, for a day of fasting together. All that information is on our website, is on the app for you to access and to stay connected with. And so let's do this as we kind of enter into this time. Uh, let's just quiet our minds and hearts so that we can enter into the space to do what we want to do, to set our minds, attentions, and hearts' affections upon Jesus so that we can follow him out of this place as the church. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness that's new and sufficient this morning, for an opportunity to come together as a family of faith, men and women who are brought together through Jesus to set our minds upon Jesus, our hearts upon Jesus, so that as we leave this place, we might be ones who live into the wholeness and the completeness, the fullness of life that we know is ours because of Jesus. So be with us here. Let your spirit give us eyes to see as we open scriptures and sing songs. Let your spirit speak to us as we, uh, Lord, receive communion, as we hear your scriptures spoken over us, as we return them back in confession. All this, Father, we long and pray for um, because you place that desire in us to be with you, 
to know you and to live out of life with you. And so we pray with a confidence in Jesus who died and who's living and a spirit that is here and is present. So in Jesus' name, amen. Um, to begin our time of worship, to kind of ground us in the reality of why we step out of our normal into this kind of rhythmic Sunday morning pattern, uh, we've asked Allison, who's here with us this Sunday, um, woohoo, yeah, um, to read for us Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and young women together, elders and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn, victory for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, who are near to him. Near to him. All who are here today, praise the Lord. <laughs> I invite you to stand as we continue to sing our praises in song. This is going to come from Psalm 148, which uh, Allison just read for us. Praise the Lord, you heavens adore Him. Praise Him, angels in the high. Sun and moon rejoice before Him. Praise Him, all you stars alive. Praise the Lord, for He hath spoken. Worlds his mighty voice obey Laws which never shall be broken For their guidance he hath made Let all creation join the song of praise Let every tongue declare his mighty ways and we will sing of your goodness and mercy all of our days praise 
praise the Lord for He is glorious Who never shall His promise fail God hath made His saints victorious Sin and death shall not prevail all creation join the song of praise Let every tongue declare His mighty ways And we will sing of your goodness and mercy All of our If you have little ones, uh, you can go ahead and make your way back now if you're helping with kids. And we'll continue together in song here in the sanctuary. Rising grief, 
Jesus be proclaimed this morning. May he enter our hearts and may 
um, your spirit dwell in us and through us. Lord, we long to hear your voice, to see your face and to know your presence. So be among us, be with us this morning. Uh, we thank you for this gathered time. In Christ's name, amen. This is a reading from 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received the gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Appreciate it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, as you know, or if you're new, maybe you don't, where our faith family is finishing up um, a season of looking at the, the letter that First Peter writes to his faith family, um, to a people who, um, who find themselves um, in the faith of Jesus Christ, longing to live out the faith of Jesus Christ uh, in a context that um, doesn't necessarily align with the vision and values of the kingdom of Christ. Um, in um, trying to live out their faith in Jesus in a way that, um, in a context and place that, that they find difficult to do that uh, for various reasons, um, um, in part because of, of the, the kind of secular status of the, the context in which they're in, in part because of just their expectations of what faith looked like and what the kingdom of God might look like, and just the normal difficulties of just life, right? Like us, they are people who, um, as Peter says, are ones born again into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ones who desire to live a life new and different than life apart from Jesus, life outside of relationship with God. Isn't that what kind of calls all of us into the life of faith anyway? Don't we hope that out of a life of faith in relationship to God, life is different, life is more Whatever difference it might make, whatever more might be, isn't what drew us into a context like this, into a relationship with people like this, into the presence of God himself, uh, a recognition that something was off in us, around us, about our life, and a longing for that thing to be made whole and healthy and complete. And, and don't we all, as ones who have walked in that faith, long to see the thing that we hoped for that drew us into that, like actually experienced in life? Don't we long for that initial drawing to be experienced in our everyday relationships, in, in the wholeness of our life? Well, we're no different than the people that Peter's writing to, that the ones who have been born again by a living hope through a resurrection of Jesus. To a faith family living in a world of different faiths, coming out of an identity as something other than God's people, who are by their culture defined not by who they are in relationship to God, but who they are um, in relationship to their economics, in relationship to their social status, in relationship to their family, whatever sort of other relationships they might have with gods, foreign gods, with, um, with um, family members, with economics, with social things. They're not known as a people of God. 
but who are now, because of Jesus, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They're called into something that they weren't before or weren't experiencing in the fullness before. An identity that was theirs from the beginning. They were all, like all of us, created in God's image. But because of the world in which they lived, they lived a different image of that. They lived a skewed image of that. But through Jesus, they've been called into being a people, into the fullness of who God has actually made them to be. And not only are they they given this identity, this, this personhood, but they're also given a purpose. That there are people for God's own possession that you, that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into this marvelous light. That the reason that they're made new is to make the whole world new. To help the whole world see what newness looks like in Jesus. To help the whole world understand what God is doing to make all things new. They have been made a people, given a purpose through the revelation of their true identity as God's children through Jesus' victorious suffering, through his life and his death, and through his victorious resurrection. And Peter assumes that the way they live out this hope, this whole and forever life anew in God, is to follow in the steps of Jesus' suffering. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now again, for those who are with us, you know this, this is where the direction of the letter's been leading, right? That Peter's grounding us in this identity of who we are and this purpose of what we've been called to. And then he begins to move us into this posture of walking in step with the way that Jesus walks. And the suffering that we talked about is this posture of submission and service and sacrifice. That when we talk about suffering, it's in Jesus' suffering. It's not merely uh, or only exclusively his physical suffering on the cross, his emotional suffering on the cross, but is his life that was a life of submission. Submission to the Father, submission to others, to their needs, to, to what God was doing in them and through them and for them. There was a service for others. The Son of Man did not come to seek and to, did not come to, to be served, but to serve, right? that ultimately his life was a life of sacrifice, all within a specific time and space and relationships, all for the sake of healing and holiness. And that's the posture we take. To, to walk out our personhood and our calling, our purpose, is to have ones who have a posture of submission, service, and sacrifice within our specific time, in our specific space, in our specific relationships. Doing so not just as a form of flagellation, but as a means of healing and holiness. That doing so is our means of participating in the good news that God is with us and for us, as Peter says, for Jesus himself bore our sins in his body and on the tree, that we might die to sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might be holy. His submission, service, and sacrifice was so that we might be holy. And not just holy, but by his wounds that we might be healed. That we might, what is broken might be restored. What is separate and other and keeps us from fullness might be brought into marvelous light. And listen, Peter argues from a place that this has already happened. That Jesus' victory has already won. That Jesus has won the victory over sin and death and all that brings disappointment and destruction into human life. And so therefore, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. 
That's what we looked at last week, right? In verse in chapter 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Guard yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus thought. With the same way of thinking of Jesus is victorious. Jesus is overcoming death and destruction, sin, all that draws out of life. Let that be your armor that allows you to go forth into life. And listen to this amazing thing. It says, for whoever does this, whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever has submitted, served, sacrificed in the flesh, has ceased from sin, has stopped missing the mark, missing out on life whole and complete, so as to live the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. They've done so in a way that allows them to live now in the flesh when things don't seem as if they should be, because Peter assumes that, right? He's like, Jesus won this victory, but we also know that right now we're still in a place where the victory doesn't look quite like a victory. But there's a way to live victorious, to live well, to live right, to live good, to live healing and holy in the midst of the flesh, and human passions. No longer for flesh and human passions, but for the will of God. This is how one translation puts it. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your suffering as a weaning from the old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. That old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. And that's what suffering weans us from. Submission weans us from. Sacrifice weans us from. Service weans us from that old habit of always expecting to get our own way. And then if that happens when we're weaned from that, we'll be able to live out our days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. Listen, this expectation that eternal life, this whole life, complete and forever life is found um, through our own way, apart from the rule and reign of God, is, is indeed an old habit, right? Like, um, I'm just, let's just kind of state what, what I assume we all know, but what the, what the scriptures teach us, is that while our psalm concludes in victory, as Allison read for us so poignantly and so powerfully, that all of creation in heaven, the seen and the unseen, all of creation on earth, the inhuman and the human, all raise up praise to God for his victory. That's how our psalm's in, 148. There's just two psalms after it. Our psalms actually begin with a childish descent. They end with a victory, but end with a descent. In Psalm 2, it says this. Why do the nations noisily assemble? Some say, translations say rage. But again, it's this kind of childish clanging, this, this like loud, rough, like running against, like, why are you, like, why making noise? Like, if you're a parent, you, you don't even need this explained, right? You know when your kids are making a noise, it's in rebellion against your, what you want for them, right? <laughs> you, you know what they're doing in the other room to make sure your attention has gotten, because they don't like what you have them doing, right? And so think of it in those longs. Why do the nations noisily assemble and the people's plot in vain? Why do they make plans to get out of their responsibility? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the context that the, the, that the readers of 1 Peter would have lived in, in the context of the nations and the, the noisy assembly of the peoples raging against the, the boundaries of the Father God, wanting to get out of his will and way and into their own. And honestly, it's the same for us, right? We find ourselves in the same context, in the same rebellion, in the same, the same state. And listen, the remainder of the Psalter is the story of waiting and expectation for God to establish dominion rule for his anointed, his king, 
his son, to bring peace and harmony back to this disruption, to come in and kind of lay at his feet all these things that oppose his goodness and his way. A waiting that Peter says is over because of Jesus. For in Jesus, we can surely say, as Psalm 148 did, he has raised up a horn, a victory for his people. Praise for all his saints, those who are known by their relationship to God. For the people of Israel, his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his people for his own possession, who are near to him. In Jesus, we can proclaim that, just as we all did through Allison a little bit ago. And so Peter can say, because we can proclaim that, that the end of all things is at hand, as Dana read. Because Jesus is in victory over sin and death, because he's put under his feet, as he says at the, um, at the end of chapter 3, all authorities and powers and rulers and those things underneath the feet of Jesus, the Psalm 2 has been answered with Psalm 148, we, the end of all things, is here. So therefore, we can live self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, for the sake of our relationship to God, for the sake of listening and responding to God. We can be self-controlled and sober-minded, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Listen, the way we cease with sin, missing the mark of a whole and forever life for the rest of the time in the flesh is by being self-controlled and sober-minded. We looked at the first one last week, so just by way of a reminder, let me say what we said self-control is. Self-control is having a mind balanced. Um, it's, in the Greek, it's the idea of meekness, this balanced mind. It's, it's mind that's balanced specifically by the rule and reign of Jesus that lets us live well through weighted action and appropriate response to the world around us. We respond to a world around us that is broken and twisted and a world within us that is broken and twisted, not from a place of anger and resentment, not from a place of power and, and dominion and trying to, to overcome it, but from a place of victory, from a place of Jesus' victory. It allows us, as, as we talked about last week, um, the way uh, the original Greek hearers would have heard this, this term, uh, it would have set in their mind the idea of being passionate and angry, this idea of um, using, letting your emotions drive you forward at the right moment, in the right time, for the right reason, or in our words, led by the Spirit, by the Word of God, that, that moved by this, thing, this gentleness, this gentle temperedness, this mind balancedness of Christ alive and reigning, God with us and God for us. We know how to use our zealousness, our power, our anger, our emotions, our skills, our abilities to the flourishing of the world, to the flourishing of the kingdom. It's a response to the world, to the rule and reign of Jesus in the world that allows us to um, submit to his vision of what is good in persons and in systems, that looks with earnestness to love others in a way that covers a multitude of sins, that provides hospitality with cheerfulness, and that is generously stewarding the grace gifts God's given us. That's what we said self-controlledness leads to. That's what self-controlledness is. That's only one side of the coin. We live this self-controlled life that allows us to, again, be responsive to the Spirit in a way that allows us to use all that God's given us for the glory of the world. But we also, he says, don't just be self-controlled, but to be sober-minded. And the way sober-mindedness is this, is this idea of staying awake, right? To, if, you're, if you're not sober, your, your faculties aren't all together there. You're not 
fully aware of everything that's going on around you, right? The world's moving slower. You miss things. You react to things not at the right time, all that kind of stuff, right? But if you're sober-minded, you're, you're wide awake. You're very aware of your surroundings and situations, both internally and externally. And so sober-minded is this idea of being wide awake to the God's way of victory. We're wide awake to God's way of victory amid opposition, which allows us to live steady and a long obedience in the same direction. If, if self-control allows us to flourish, to live well, to know how to live well, sober-mindedness allows us to live steadily, perseveringly, in a long thing of this life in the flesh. Where it's not quick, right? As much as we wanted at our conversion to where we, our eyes were open to Jesus and life was new to us to be fully all that we were meant to be for Jesus to come and finish what he started, there seems to be this drag, right? It seems to be this long life. And so self-control allows us to flourish in that life. Sober-mindedness allows us to be steady in that life. And it is sober-mindedness that is the focus of Peter's final section. If you notice at the end of um, where we finished last week, chapter 4, verse 11, uh, Jesus or Peter says, Amen. And um, like any good preacher, Peter gets in one more sermon after his final, after his Amen, and the wrap up of the, of the, the message, right? Like, like you know, that's, that's what preachers do. That's why I'm not allowed to pray at our family functions, um, because the next thing after Amen is usually another sermon. And so, so Peter leads us out of this amen at the end of chapter 4 um, into this next section. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to read this section together. Um, we're going to kind of break it up a little bit. So we'll read the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5 because they kind of come together. And then there's a, kind of this parenthesis in the middle of it that we'll come back to. But the, 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 the beginning and the end, the end of chapter 4, the end of chapter 5, kind of bring into one idea and thought. So we're going to read that together, and as we read it, we're just going to kind of talk about it. Kind of see what Peter's trying to leave with his faith family um, as we are left um, and leaving um, this book for now. And so he says this in chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Again, he's walked through this whole idea of what God is doing and what Jesus is doing. And so he says, listen, a part of sober-mindedness is not being surprised that life is hard. And, and listen, he'll get into the hardness of life in just a second. Like, not everything in life is a test from God. Not everything in life is a trial from God. But specifically, we go through life and following Jesus, it feels difficult it feels like suffering in our relationships, in our social status, in what we desire, in our expectations, because it is a stretching thing that is in opposition. It is this thing that is testing us, drawing out our faith. For those who have been a part of our faith family for any length of time, you know the way the scriptures talk about testing is not a pass or fail, but is to draw out what is already there, to prove what is already in existence. So Jesus tests to draw out faith. Abraham was tested to draw out his faith, not to condemn him, but to bring out what God knew was already there within him. And often that's what life feels like for us, like this, this testing, this, this thing, this real true identity that's already ours is being brought up through the surface, but it's brought up through difficulties. It's brought up through trials. It's brought up amid the brokenness of life, not always in the victories of life. 
And this is the way that God works. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that the difficulties of life are where our faith, our identity, where God's faithfulness and God's identity get proven. That's the way he's worked. That's the way he's worked throughout all of his scriptures. And so in verse 13, he says, so rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice because, listen, you feel this pain because you are actually doing the things that Jesus did. Because you're trying to live submissively, servingly, sacrificially for the sake of others in your time and space and relationships for healing and holiness. You're suffering things because you're living rightly. Now, how many of you in the faith have ever heard like, if you're, if, like, you're trying to do something and, um, and it's difficult, that like, that's a sign that like, you might not be doing something right? Like, I mean, sometimes, all right? How many of you have heard like, it's, if, if you're experiencing difficulties, it's obviously that you're on the right path, right? So we kind of get this in our faith a little bit. Like what Peter's trying to do is he's saying, listen, this suffering thing is normal. And what he's about to do is kind of unpack the differences between, between the two. But listen, if you're following Jesus, if you're striving to be like Jesus and live out your life, you will experience suffering. Because if you're trying to live submissively, servingly, sacrificially, it will be hard. It'll be hard in your career. It'll be hard in your relationships. It'll be hard in your community. Like you will experience pushback to that. That's what chapter four was all about. You'll be reviled because of that. You won't be understood because of that. You will lose out on some things because of that. But that is the reality of it. But that's what Jesus did. And so you're actually, this is a part of how God is making things new in you and in the world is by you actually suffering like Jesus suffered. You actually living like Jesus said. This is your purpose. This is a part of your purpose. This isn't just something to get through to your purpose. This is, like Jesus' suffering, your purpose. This is your ministry. And so rejoice and be glad insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That through that, his beauty, his splendor, his majesty is made known. And how many of us can say in our own lives, when we suffered and got through it, because of Jesus, because we're trying to live like Jesus, that we've shared in and seen the glory, the splendor, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus in our lives. We've known it more personally. We've been a part and witness to it being made known more clearly to those around us. So listen, there is this, there is this expectation that that's the ministry that we're called to. But listen, he says this, just as, just as a way of kind of balancing out our tendency to go to, to, to use suffering as a measuring tool. He says this in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, right? Um, because the spirit of glory and power of God rests upon you. Listen, like if you're insulted for the name of Christ in the way of Jesus, you're blessed, right? Um, that, that's, 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 you're good. You're, you're a part of life. Go back to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. It's the same word. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All that, right? Blessed are you because you're walking in step and in line with Jesus. You're good. The spirit, power of God's with you. Be encouraged. Like, let, don't let that suffering destroy you. Don't let that suffering diminish you. Don't let that suffering cause you doubt because you're in step with your full and content life in God. But then he says in verse 15, but let no, none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler in the more accurate translation or as a busybody. In other words, like there is some suffering that's just brought on because of you. Like you just bring it on yourself. 
There is a way of living in which some of the things that you suffer in your time, space, and relationships is because of you, because you bring death to something, because you want what isn't yours, um, because you just don't like what is good. You're an evildoer. You have some sort of vision of good that's not the good of God. Or even, and this is kind of funny that he connects us to it, so forgive me for laughing, but it is kind of funny. So with murder, thievery, and evil doing, he connects being a busybody, getting in people's business. Like, quit, quit causing drama. Like, I know soap operas are what come on in during the daytime and in all of our evening television. And in every show, there is drama, 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 drama. Everywhere there's drama. Everywhere there's drama in our life. But if you're the causer of drama, if you get in and create drama, you're missing it. Like you deserve whatever suffering you get and it's not blessed. So as a Christian, think about this. As a Jesus follower who's prone to get into the lives of other people for the sake of healing and holiness, he's warning Christians, don't be busybodies. I mean, how many times have you been at church and said, heard the pastor say, don't get involved in each other's lives? That's not exactly what I'm saying, but I'm saying you better be careful what you're doing in each other's lives. Like, don't get in just to be a dramatic causer, drama causer. Don't get in to try to fix. Don't get in to try to, to rule and control. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Like, getting in each other's lives is for the point of healing and wholeness because we're led in there because of Jesus. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes being in each other's life is difficult as we submit at a mutual submission one to another out of reverence for Jesus because life is difficult, and that's the way of Jesus. But sometimes it's because we just cause the trouble ourselves. So, our tendency, again, is to measure life based on suffering. And Peter's like, nope, you can't do that. Suffering should be expected. But the why you're suffering matters. Are you suffering because you're trying to live like Jesus? If so, be encouraged because you're on it. You're in it. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Sober-minded lives are ones who realize that a part of the ministry that we're called to is to suffer like Jesus in our relationships. In submission and service and sacrifice to one another, to our neighbors, our community, our institutions, our employers, employees, our spouses, our children, to one another as the church, as Peter's laid out in the letter so far. That is our ministry, to share life and to work through those things for healing and wholeness, holiness. But sometimes we suffer just because, well, we bring it about. So we cannot just measure it. We have to press in and ask the Lord why. Let ourselves be examined. All the practices that we talk about all the time, so I won't belabor it. Verse 16, he keeps going. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and this is one of only three times in our, te- in our scriptures that the word Christian is being used, and, um, and in this context, he's anyone who identifies with the way of Jesus, these Christ followers, if you're suffering because you're following Christ, this idea of being in step with him, living life as he would live life, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed because, because, listen, the reality of what's happening in the context here, what happens in our world is sometimes following the way of Jesus doesn't lead us to a life that looks like the rest of what success looks like for our world. And there's shame in that. We feel the shame of that. When we compare our lives to the lives of those around us, we feel some shame because sometimes it doesn't look quite as good or quite as successful or quite as noble, or quite as altruistic, or whatever. Because, listen, it's real. Like, we, we know what it looks like to be a Christ follower. Our sin's clear. Like, we know our struggles. Like, we also know our limitations. And so, sometimes our life doesn't measure up. So, but don't feel shame in that. There's not a shame in that. 
but rather there's a glory, a beauty, a splendor, a majesty that's in the name of Jesus, that's in this life that's lived like Jesus. And then he says this, for it is, in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this is important. This is why Peter calls us to sober-mindedness. And so this idea of judgment beginning at the household of God, that it's time for judgment, needs a little bit of explaining. Because um, again, Jesus, Peter's sharing with people who he shared life with, a faith family that he helped begin to raise up, who, uh, who knows him, who he sees as um, spiritual sons and daughters, as family members. And so he would have shared with them what he heard from Jesus, the, the gospel that uh, he witnessed in relationship with Jesus. And there's this scene in John chapter 12 which kind of helps us understand this idea of judgment that Peter's trying to unpack. In John chapter 12, Jesus um, is getting ready to go to the cross, the ultimate sacrifice for our lives, the thing that opened us uh, up into a way with God and his, through his resurrection, overcame all the things that, that still take life from us today. Um, and on his way there to the cross, on his way back into to Jerusalem, um, like any human, um, Jesus feels the weight of his calling, the weight of his suffering, the weight of his purpose. And so he prays aloud, one of the few prayers he prays aloud, he prays aloud to the Father. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's what he longs for, right? He, he doesn't necessarily want to go through everything that he's about to go through. His soul is already beginning to, to be ripped. He knows what's coming in front of him to some degree, and he feels the weight of it, but he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. For this purpose, I have come to this moment, this time, this specific, ordained, God-created time. Father, glorify your name then. Like I, but listen, this is difficult. Suffering is hard. I, know I, I don't really want to do it, but I know that this is what you've made me for, so be glorified in it. Let your name be glorified within me and whatever I'm about to walk through, not only in what I'm about to do, but in who I am through it. And then listen to this. A voice came from heaven in answer to Jesus' prayer. It says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him, but Jesus answered, the voice has come not for my sake, but for yours. For now, listen, now is the judgment of this world. Now is, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will be drawn, will draw all people to myself. The judgment's already happened. This world and the way of this world has been shown to lead to death and only death. God has judged the world that everything opposed to his way is death and leads to death. Now the world is judged. And now the ruler of this world, who we'll talk about in a minute, is cast out. Now this judgment has happened. Now God's hour has happened. Now his salvation has happened. Now he's separated out the things that destroy from the things that bring life. And when I'm lifted up, from the earth, when Jesus is drawn out of resurrection, out of the ground, this isn't the, the cross, this is his resurrection. When I'm lifted up off the earth, when I'm lifted out of the earth, out of death, then I'll draw all men to myself. The, the judgment of the world has taken place in some way in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. 
Peter says that judgment begins with us. And this is why we keep reading in John chapter 12. And Jesus cried out in the same conversation and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, but may know the marvelousness of the one, excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness into light through Jesus. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world in my life, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Listen, all this is going to get proven out. Right? Jesus says there's no need to, to judge. Like there's no, the, the judgment's already happened. Like you've been proven to be one who needed God to die for you. You've been proven to be one who was in concert with the enemy. But if you believe me, there's light. If you believe you need that, then there's this light that you get to live into. There's this drawing out of darkness that is yours. But if you don't, listen, you're, you're going you're gonna to just be where you're already at, in darkness. There's the... The, my life, my word, my way will actually prove out. For I have not spoken on my own authority, Jesus says, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. He's not saying, I'm just saying these things for your information. Like, I'm speaking because this is the way the Creator has created it. This is the way the Redeemer has redeemed it. This is the way the planner, the organizer of all of history has made it move. He has commanded me what to say and what to speak. And now that this commandment, and I know that this commandment is eternal life. What is the commandment that God's given? It's not destruction, but it's eternal life. It's life forever. Because destruction is the reality that you live in. The judgment's already been cast. Eternal life is the commandment. Which Jesus says, I say therefore, as the Father has told me, This idea that Jesus is already judged, that our lives have already been judged by Jesus. And listen, in their being found wanting, they've also been found worth rescue. And that our life in Jesus, with Jesus, can be lived eternally, fully, wholly, completely. And that begins, judgment begins, therefore, with us, with the church, with the people who are following God, who have responded to Jesus, who have chosen to let Jesus save them. And so, jump back into 1 Peter 4. So, if it begins with us, if this new life, this judgment begins with us, this, this weaning away of all that is opposed to God inside of us and in collaboration with this enemy, this darkness, if all that starts with us, this pulling out of darkness into light, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Who do not respond to the good news of God with them and for them? For as Proverbs says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, who will judge out? Like, listen, if you get in by the grace of God, if we by the grace of God are ones who experience life, well, we know that at some point those who don't will experience death. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, as Jesus did, it was God's will that Jesus died. That's what Peter says earlier. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator, as Jesus did. Verse, chapter 2, verse 23. 
Jesus did not revile, um, when reviled, did not return revile um, with revile because he entrusted himself to the one who is the just, who judges his soul justly, who entrusted himself to the vision and plan of the creator while doing good, as Jesus did. So at the end of chapter four, Peter gives us this picture of sober-mindedness that recognizes that our suffering is our ministry. The suffering in relationship with others, submission, service, sacrifice for their sake of healing and holiness is what we're called to. That this is the way in which God is bringing about his salvation in the world, in us and through us. That whatever whatever ideas we have of success, whatever ideas we have of ministry, whatever ideas of transformation, that this is the way in which God is working it out. That it will look like this. In some ways, it will go through this. And if to go through it any other way is to somehow go out of the way that Jesus is going. So if we expect it to happen any other way, we'll miss it. And listen, if we just suffer because we bring about suffering ourselves, well then, like, that's the way the world is. Like, you're, there, there's nothing blessed about it. But there is a way of suffering of sober-mindedness, of steadiness that helps us be steady because it's in step with what Jesus has done, what Jesus has did, and what Jesus is doing. And so that's the first part of sober-mindedness. But, he, but then he goes and he ends the chapter, uh, chapter five this way. He says in verse eight of chapter five, he reminds us, again, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, being sober-minded, wide awake to the way of God's victory amid opposition allows us, helps us to understand that suffering like Jesus in submission, service, and sacrifice in our time and space and relationships for the sake of healing and holiness is how God is bringing about transformation, salvation, and judgment. Like, that's the way God brings it about, through our shared suffering with Jesus. But being sober-minded, wide awake to the way of God's victory amid opposition keeps us aware that there is an enemy who opposes not only God's way, but you and others who are following Jesus with you. That listen, like part of the suffering that we get to partake in, the submission, service, sacrifice, is because we're warring for one another. We're seeking God on behalf of one another. We're sacrificing um, for the goodness of one another. But some of it is experienced because there's one who opposes the thing that we're doing. This is our real enemy. This is our true enemy. And we need to be aware that, that when we are feel the strains of this ministry, this life, this purpose that we're called to, then most likely everybody else around us is feeling the strain, the strain too. That we're not alone in our struggle. Because listen, the enemy, what he wants to do is he wants to, to, pull, to devour us, to pull us against one another. Not just against God, but against one another. This is what we've seen from the beginning of the story, right? But Peter's like, listen, if you're sober-minded, you're wide awake that you have this enemy, that the enemy is coming after you looking for someone to devour. But he says someone to devour, anyone to devour. That means he's also probably after the person next to you, your spouse, your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, your government leaders, whatever they might be. These people that you're in relationship with in some sort of way in your time and space. So if you're aware of that, if you're awake to that, 
how does the enemy work? Paul would say that like, part of our job is to help each other be aware of how the enemy works and to counter that of his traps. Some of that is being aware and just humble enough to pray and seek the protection of one another, to be soft enough in the way we respond to one another, knowing that the struggles that, that pull us apart may actually be being engineered not just by the person who looks like my enemy, but the one who's behind that person who is the enemy, right? So sober-mindedness keeps us awake to the way that God goes about getting victory, but also how he goes about getting victory in the midst of opposition, who that opposition really is. And this brings us back to the middle, back to why um, Peter ends his, his time with people in a room like this, people who are together as a family. And um, chapter five, verse one, Jesus, or Peter says this, um, of what it looks like to share life together following Jesus. He says quickly, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the suffering of Christ. Now, when I read this, I'm sure some of you have in your mind when I say elder, um, a position. Um, and, and there's some of that can be true here in the, the language that, that Peter's using. But if you go back to the first of the letter, Peter introduces himself as apostle. Um, and so when he says he's an elder, um, and the way he's going to flesh this out in a second, it could mean to some degree positional within the faith family, but really it means one who's mature, one who's older in age and maturity and spirituality, like who, who has a maturity about them, all right? And so that's, I'm not, that's not discounting eldership by any means. I'm just saying that this is what Peter's talking about, and it'll get fleshed out as we go, that there's this idea of this, the, the more mature person, both in age and experience in life, as well as in and spiritual, spiritual matureness. And so he says, so I exhort the, the more mature among you as a fellow one who's been mature, but also as a witness to the suffering of Christ, the apostleship, right? As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge of being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What Peter is doing right here is he's showing us what it looks like to be Jesus to one another. If we're self-controlled and sober-minded, he says those that are spiritually mature amongst you, those who are just older amongst you, who have had a little more life amongst you, Shepherd the flock that God has placed you among, exercising, exercising oversight, exercising some sort of responsibility for the community. Not because of position, but because of age and maturity. Simply because you have it. Because it's been given to you to have lived and to know the, the way of the Father. Not under compulsion, not because somebody's prodding you to do it, you got to be told every other day to do it, to, hey, take responsibility, take responsibility, or out of a compulsion of, listen, all these youngins aren't going to be able to do it, so I've just got to get in there and do it for them kind of thing, right? But a willingness of like, hey, this is where God's placed me. This is who God's placed me amongst. This is what God's given me in age and experience and maturity. Willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, not because you want something out of it, honor, authority, power, wealth, greed, whatever it might be, not, not leading others, influencing others, being involved in their lives to get something out of their lives. But eagerly, 
passionately, desirously wanting what God has for them. Not domineering over those in your charge. That is, not trying to exercise control and authority um, in a way that um, manipulates, that coerces, that, um, that sets up the standard for the way. Not domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the flock. Examples of what to the flock? Examples of Jesus, Jesus to the flock. Examples of, of how Jesus led us and is leading others to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the one shepherd who we're all under appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, listen, those who are among us who are spiritually mature, who are older in age and time, listen, you get to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus, the way Jesus would. You actually have that responsibility to do it. Like this is what God has made you for. This is why God's brought you through all of your life for. This is why God's gifted you for. It's to show us what it looks like to relate to Jesus, to show the body what it looks like to relate to one another like Jesus relates to us. And he says, likewise, in verse five, you who are younger, younger in age, younger in spiritual maturity, be subject to your elders. Be subject to them. Just in the same, it's the same word that Chess talked about a few weeks ago that's throughout this entire letter of this mutual submission, this idea of recognizing our place that we can learn from, that we're a part of, that we have responsibility within. It's not a complete losing of yourself, but it's understanding where you are in context of life and in God's organizing of life. But then he says this, as the younger ones, this is how you be an example, is you be an example of what it looks like to relate to one another Jesus because you're subject, you're submissive to the time and place and reality of your stage of life that God has put you in. But he says, both of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. In other words, what you see in each other, what should be seen when everyone looks at each other is humility. Humility. And a humility, because we know that we need a Jesus, right? That we're broken in need of a Savior. We know that we're limited and that we're not Jesus in the way that Jesus is Jesus. But that we can be an example of who Jesus is by the way that we live and the way that we walk and the way that we talk and what we do, that we've been given gifts to be used for the body. That, that we actually relate to one another, not so self-centered that, we're, that we... Um, we try to control what everyone thinks of us or control what everyone does for us, but rather we actually interact with each other with a longing to see the goodness of one another brought to maturity. That's what humility is. Again, see, we talked about it before, C.S. Lewis put it more succinctly, says humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And it's not just a forgetfulness of self, but it's a, like letting yourself think about those around you and their good. It's submission. That's what it is. For in verse six, it says, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the one who controls all of history, all the domains and authorities, all the victory that is under him, if we humble ourselves, at the proper time, he'll exalt us. If we humble ourselves under him, at some point, we will be all that we really long to be in, as humans. And therefore, we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. In other words, we can be free. 
because we're under him. All of our worries are the one who cares for us. So as we conclude Peter's letter to us, let this reality sink in, that we're called in the midst of this time and place, in the midst of our relationships, to be sober-minded and self-controlled as participants, as ones living um, uh, a living hope for the sake of our selves, for the sake of our community here, for the sake of our neighborhood and society. All because Jesus rules and reigns. This identity, this purpose, everything we have comes underneath the fact that Jesus has, through his suffering, brought about a way for us to to see life in its fullest, the gospel here and now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, the God of all grace has called us to eternal glory in Jesus. That Jesus himself has and is restoring us, confirming us, strengthening us, and establishing us so that everything in our lives might be seen to be under the dominion and the glory, the goodness, the graciousness, and the rather, yes, upside-down power of Jesus, now and forever and ever. So help us, Father, to be a family of faith clothed in humility, who helps each other see and know what it looks like to live this life of hope out self-controlled and sober-minded to the glory of your name, through your son. Amen. Welcome to Stand and Sing This.
to my waist And your grace knows no bounds All these things too wonderful to speak of Fill my soul with heavenly sound It's only you have said Grab your communion elements. Um, they're there in the chairs just in front of you. <clears throat> Following uh, Psalm 48, a Psalm 149 um, says, All you here today, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel, that chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, be glad in his master. Let the children of Zion, our Father in heaven, rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. We've proclaimed that all sermon long, right? This has been the whole thing of Peter's address is this declaration. But then this is what the psalmist says. It says, let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all the godly ones. All you here today, praise the Lord. Again, following the psalm that Allison read for us, there's this, which calls all of creation, seen and unseen, to praise God for his victory. Psalm 149 calls a covenant community, the group set apart to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. To action. Action birthed from praise. 
an action that Walter Brueggemann says is warlike action, action against authorities and forces, which as Psalm 2 says, set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. Here at the end of our Psalter, at the end of all things, praise moves us to action in the world, into the victory of God in Jesus. And how did Jesus, who was the two-edged sword, known as the word, how does he bring justice, execute vengeance, bring judgment and claim victory, binding rulers and authorities and powers? He does throw through a life given in submission, service, and sacrifice, a body broken and blood poured out. That's how he waged war. That's how he claimed victory. As Jesus said in the days before his death and resurrection, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We stand here this afternoon, this morning, as ones drawn to victorious and vindicated Jesus because he gave his life so that we might live and might share that life with others. That our praise through 1 Peter should lead us into action. So we'll confess together just a moment Peter's doxology to Jesus, who brings us to God and to life itself. Then we'll receive these symbols of Jesus' rule and reign together. That's what these are. This, this bread and this juice, reminders of how God goes about winning victory over all its evil, over oppression, over death, and brings about in the midst of opposition life in its fullest. These are symbols that give way and shape to our action in this kingdom that it might be in similar manner. So would you please join me in confessing and receiving. Let's say together, to Jesus belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In his name. close we'll just we'll sing together to remember and as a prayer that God might restore to us the joy of our salvation high and holy one you are high and lifted up and still you come for me to the broken the poor to the weak and the whole, and you have come for me. High and holy one, you were high and lifted up, and still you've come for me. To the sinner and the saint, to the addict and the saint. You have come to me. You dwell on high, you dwell in light, and still you've come to me. One perfect life laid down for my torn open for me. Who am I that you were mindful of me? I'm overwhelmed that you were broken for me. And though my soul 
You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world, so keep a firm grip on the faith. The suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ, eternal and glorious plans they are, will have you put together and on your feet for good because Jesus gets the last word. Yes, he does, and he does today. So thanks, love you guys. See you next week.